The InvinoFab podcast brings meaningful conversations to our community of listeners. Part of this is sharing stories with and by our friends like Telesom, who want to bring meaningful experiences to you. At Telesom, we're on a mission to create meaningful work for sommeliers, meaningful connections for wine lovers, and to change the face of wine. For this season of InvinoFab, we're honored to raise a glass with sommeliers who want to share their wine secrets and knowledge with you. For this season of InvinoFab, we're collaborating with Telesom to fill your cup and your ear with Somalia stories, uncorking the wine tales. Welcome to another Psalm story. Today we're talking with Amitesh Dayal. Tesh Dayal's roots in hospitality can really be traced back to his mom. His restaurant experience, however, started from working at Morton's The Steakhouse. Tesh moved on to other restaurants in California, including Piotti, Ella Dining Room and Bar, and then he graduated to become the sommelier at the kitchen for almost four years. Tesh then transitioned into wine sales to focus on growing his family, and after a year of selling wine to restaurants, he found himself furloughed due to the pandemic. That leads to now. Tesh is excited to put wines in front of you and your friends and family that you may not have heard of or even known about before. His goal truly is to bridge the gap between good people and good wine. You can find Tesh at winewithtesh.com, on the Telesom app, or any social media site, Wine Talk with Tesh. Welcome to the podcast, Tesh. We're so happy to have you. To get started on the InvinoFab pod for the Telesom Psalm story, tell us your sommelier story. How'd you get into this wine work? Uh, I got really spoiled in the world of wine. My first glass of wine was like a 1960 German Riesling that my cousin poured for me. And I had no idea what I was drinking. I just took a sip and remember thinking, wow, that is absolutely phenomenal. And I ended up chugging my glass, uh, to which my cousin so kindly corrected me and said, hey, man, you should probably sip on that because that's a really special glass of wine. You, You know, technically, that's his fault for pouring an amateur a really, really spectacular glass. And it was good. It was good for me because it really opened up my eyes. I had no idea that I was going to be uh, so into uh, beverages, alcoholic beverages. And uh, that that one glass really kind of uh, was a turning point for me. I got my foot into the restaurant industry. Uh, namely, uh, my, my real start was at Morton's the Steakhouse, uh, where, you know, you're serving really nice steaks and uh, wine is a big piece of that. And so that eventually led into just uh, reading books and trying to grow. Uh, so I was like, I would think I was there for like a host I had just started. And I think I was like two weeks in. And I looked at my general manager who I who who gave me my job, right? He offered me the job. Um, I looked at him and I was like, how do I become your AGM someday? And he just started laughing. He was like, dude, you've been a host here for two weeks. Uh, so, you know, go through some baby steps, you know, go do this, do that. And he was like asking me about my wine knowledge. Uh, and he said that that would be a big piece uh, in order to get into serving. Started, bu- started buying and reading books, started tasting as much as I could, you know, uh, at the restaurant and just getting familiar with that wine program and uh, eventually became a wine captain at the restaurant that led to other managing opportunities at other restaurants. Uh, I worked at an Italian restaurant called Piatti, where I became the beverage manager. Uh, during my two-year tenure there, I passed my, I took and passed my level one exam uh, through the Court of Master Sommeliers. Uh, I went to Ella here in downtown, which is a phenomenal restaurant. Uh, I was managing there for a year, and uh, the family who owns that, after one year of managing there, uh, asked me to go to the kitchen. 
uh, and run that wine program. And that was a beast because that's like their flagship restaurant. So them asking was a huge deal. Uh, I had to interview for the job, which was really interesting and cool. Uh, but I did get it. And the day that they offered me the job, I signed up to take my level two exam again through the court. And four months later, when I took the exam, I passed. And that was a huge, huge sigh of relief because I pretty much at that time, I had only had one kid. Uh, now I have two. But at that time, I pretty much ignored my wife and my kid for like four months. And it was just constantly whine, like nonstop. You regret then, that now, I'm sure. No, and I, I'm going to pause and, <laughs> and reel it back from our audience. So I too grew up as one of my jobs uh, is in restaurant and bar and work. So we're going to break down some of these things. So yeah, out of, do it. Out of California, um, I want you to explain because you're right. No one goes from zero to wine ca- wine captain. You have like a host. You are busing maybe, maybe you're a server, maybe you are a server captain who knows what is a wine captain tell our listeners what that so is. A, a wine captain at morton's was basically like uh you're 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 a glorified uh server but you are also like the closing manager uh and tied into that is you help manage the wine program uh and at morton's it was a pretty corporate program right so there wasn't like a ton of leeway it's not like you're tasting regularly and buying to like curate a list but it was important for exposure especially in the world of like california cabernet right like that's that's a huge thing so at that restaurant that that basically just meant like entry-level management like you're about to get into management um which just means more time on the floor uh, with, of course, being the wine captain, there's a huge focus of service. Um, so being the one to present bottles and open expensive bottles and so on and so forth. And the wine program there. So if you want to break it down for, let's say our listener is a novice, tell mm-hmm. them a little bit about what that means and how you would manage it. Okay. So you go into a restaurant and you, and you take a look at the wine list, right? And hopefully somebody has put a little bit of thought into, into curating and and putting uh, those wines on that menu. Right. And I've been on the sales side as well, since I left the restaurant industry. I, now I'm at a private club in addition to working my business, but I've been on the sales side where I'm doing sales and distributions to restaurants. And it kind of is amazing how little thought a lot of restaurants put into their wine program. And so when you go to a spot that does put a lot of thought or in, or uh, care into the wine program, it's noticeable, right? Uh, they have range, for example, right? They have a broad variety of grapes to select from on their menu, or it'll be thought out in the sense of, oh, we have pairings available, or even, hey, you know, what, what dish are you having? You know, we're really recommending this glass of wine to enjoy with that. Things like that are going to be clues into, into someone at that restaurant has taken time to not only pick the wines, but really have tasted the wines prior to putting them in front of you and has put some thought into why it would make sense on that menu. Thanks for sharing that. Yeah. And I equate it and explain it as like almost the curator, like an art gallery or librarian of wine, because you're managing both the bigger, what the needs are, as well as understanding what your clients and your guests are coming to the house. So that's great. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah, absolutely. So you got in it through restaurants and compared to some of the other Psalms we've talked to, that's sometimes a grind, uh, but you've had exposure at a few different restaurants and varieties of wine, because that sounds like the best time and place to learn because it's not the wine you buy necessarily. It's the wine you try. Yeah, most definitely. And I, you know, if you see a Psalm walking around and they're like curating a program and they don't have a tasting book, 
I, I always kind of, kind of like a big like flag for me is like, you got to have a tasting book, man. Uh, because the thing is, is that when you're in the restaurant environment and you, and you, and you come up as a sommelier in the restaurant environment, you're going to taste stuff that isn't perfect right now. And what I mean by that is like it, the wine is phenomenal. It's hitting all the marks It's balanced, right? Acidity fruit, everything is on point, but there's nothing on my menu currently or my met my next menu even that, that that wine works with. And I've had it happen where like I went back and I ordered a wine that I tasted nine, 10, 12 months ago. And, you know, it became one of those things where like, uh, Hey man, we're actually onto the whole new vintage. Uh, and that's fine. Right. So I would just have them bring me the new vintage, but it was like I, that wine in particular struck a chord and I think it'll work really well with this menu. Can you tell our listeners uh, what a tasting book is? Yeah, basically it's, it's like a, it's like your Bible. It's like your own self-curated Bible. It doesn't have rules for you to live by, uh, but it is it is the ultimate reference tool, right? I mean, you can buy the wine Bible, you can buy the wine atlas, and they are those are phenomenal references uh, in terms of being a psalm and, and just having tools in your bag that you need to have, right? Because you're going to forget a lot of stuff. I know I do. I'm the first one to admit that. I think people are really uh, taken aback when, as a psalm, when I tell them I have no idea, let me go look it up. In any profession, right, there's going to be a time where you're going to have to say, I have no idea. It's been a long, a long time. I need to look that up. And so, um, so yeah, so really what it is, is just you taking notes in a systemic way. So for me, that looks like the first thing I'll ever write down is the date that I tasted it, who I tasted it, what company they're with. And then it becomes vintage producer, varietal, varietal breakdown at that. And then, uh, where it's coming from, and some tasting notes, right? Is the wine big? Is it bold? Uh, what kind of fruit characteristics does it show? If I think of a, something like a potential pairing, I'll write that down. And then the biggest thing is going to be price. Like well, how much does this wine cost? Because that, that is a, a, an aspect, I think, of running any program that is just as important as people don't think about uh, the cost of running a program. So you have to know, you have to be able to speak knowledgeably to, you want to be the Psalm who shows up to PL meetings and knows what the hell they're talking about. Why is your cost of goods what they are and, and why, uh, why those things are important to the bottom line for a restaurant. Restaurants don't make a ton of money. So when you are in part of, when you're a part of the piece of the, you know, the alcohol program uh, in a major way, you have to be able to speak on how you're helping that restaurant be productive. Yeah. And some of what I've seen from Psalms that I know that that go out and purchase wines from distributors or vineyards, you have to like know the price point that they're selling it at. And then what you would bring back to your restaurant's own kind of collection and know, um, because that is a big piece of often those kind of restaurants you're talking about, those meals, uh, wine and any sort of liquor would be a huge cost. And that's where the charges are because you're selling it depending on whether it's a pairing meal, a tasting meal with pairings, or it's the bottle that people are looking at because it's paired well for the food that dishes you have on your menu. So that's really interesting. Do you have a, a strategy or is there a strategy for how things will, I won't say get marked up, but get priced, I guess, price points? It's different for every place, right? So um, in the restaurant world, when I was at the kitchen, uh, it was it was pretty structured, right? If it was on the buy the glass program, it was usually four times the cost of the bottle. And then you break that down. So basically every glass that I sold should cover the cost of the bottle. And then the other three contribute to actually helping run the buy the glass program. Now at the kitchen, that was cool because the, the price point is 
is flexible, right? I mean, when you come to a high-end restaurant, people would expect to pay a little bit more. And as such, I was able to do things like put like $50 glasses of wine on the menu and we would regularly sell it. It also helped that those $50 glasses were part of a, a like reserve pairing. So we knew that we were going to open the bottle. We knew we were going to sell reserve pairings. Uh, we knew that we'd be able to pour that by the glass anyways, right? Uh, so a lot of restaurants don't have that option. And if they do now, uh, they'll do it with like a Coravin or something. And then for anything that's on the list, that's just like a, a part of the actual, like, you know, flipping past anything past the by the glass page, uh, it was usually two to three times the cost. And we tried to give breaks on like the higher end stuff, right? We're like, if you're going to come in and spend, you know, $4,000 on a bottle of wine, we, we're not going to try and gouge you at three times. We'll just go one and a half, which is more retail um, or two, two times the, the cost, which is nearer to retail. So we tried to, we tried to balance it out. It was always constant balancing act. You're selling a lot of wines by the glass, right? In any particular month or, or pairings where the cost of goods are going to be a little bit better, a little bit more aggressive that can easily get outshined by like a, a, a couple thousand dollars in sales of high end bottles. All right. Let's jump back to an interesting part of your story. I have a question about the best German wine is not often how most of us taste wine. And maybe most people don't find a, a palate or a taste for wine until much later in life, because it's usually out of a, a box, a big bottle. I don't know. Patrice, can you name an early wine that you've tried? I think it was, a, it had a nun on it. It was like Lambruski or something like that. <laughs> Lambrusco. Yeah, probably. <laughs> so how, how do you go from like, yeah, zero to good tasting wine so quickly? Okay, so I got I got really lucky. Uh, so anyway, so my so my cousin he had been drinking for quite some time. I had not drunk at all until I was like 22. I was like a good little church boy, you know, wanting to do everything by the book, um, and I just I didn't really have any kind of interest in in drinking because I, I saw how my family kind of grew up with it and how it affected them and and their life. Uh, and it wasn't always a positive way, right? Sometimes there were really good times, but uh, oftentimes they were sprinkled in with some crazy shit. And so uh, so when I started drinking, I started hanging out with this cousin uh, and he was like, hey, come to San Francisco and hang out with me. Uh, we'll go bar hopping. And I was like, I ain't never been bar hopping. That sounds great. And so, uh, so I showed up to his apartment in San Francisco uh, and he was like, you want to start with a little wine before we go, you know, have some beer and shots? And I was like, I... Don't know what I'm doing. So yeah, let's go. And he just, for whatever reason, he decided to take care of me. So that I know, and I know that that's not everyone's story. Most everyone's story is the flip-flop, right? You start with the inexpensive stuff and then you work your way up eventually. For me, I just got very lucky, man. He just, he treated me that one time. Uh, and then I became very bougie about beverages as a result. And I didn't realize it at the time, but like in college, I would show up to like these house parties with like a bottle of Riesling right that I brought right yeah who do yeah who doesn't right and it wasn't for the ladies no it was for me man like I just wanted to drink really good wine like us you know we would play we would play uh beer pong of course right we're in college I did all that stuff we played beer pong but I was always the guy like on my side right I needed fat tire in my cup I couldn't just have like Keystone like I couldn't have Coors Light so yeah so I just yeah and then from there it just kind of took off for me right and then being at Morton's as like the first like real restaurant gig where like I really got exposed to more wine the you know the wines they're, they're a lot often their their list can be upper tier and so 
I, I got to taste a lot of good stuff. I was very fortunate. And, and now you mentioned um, that you're at a private club. Yeah. So like two weeks ago, I just started uh, at a private club again. And really the private club is really cool. It's called the Sutter Club. Uh, it's here in downtown Sacramento. They have 750 members who, and it's, you know, it's an event space. So they have their own little grill that has the, the wine program. They have their own little bar. Uh, and then it's event driven, like this whole thing is the whole place is really event driven. So they have a ton of different rooms where they do a lot of catering. They do a lot of menus, a huge kitchen. It's a cool, really cool, like old school four story building. The food is a trip. Like the, there's like dummy, uh, dummy elevators that they send food on carts up and down to like whatever floor they need to be on. And it's quite fascinating to see uh, how, such an old building in such an old place with so much history is really functioning to this day. It's kind of kind of cool. You're one of the few psalms that actually are working as a psalm in a place, like whether it's a restaurant or this club, which I think a lot of these, those are popping up around uh, private clubs where people can have events. So we usually ask folks like, how does your wine, your work of wine connect with what you do in your day job? But it always has, it sounds like. It, it really has. Yeah, it always has. It's always been a major part of, of my life. You know, even even when uh, when I so when I left the kitchen, uh, which was several years ago now, I left because I had my wife and I had we had had our second kid, and at the kitchen it was really really long days, like ten to twelve hour days as a as a sommelier slash dining room manager. Uh, so you start at two, you usually don't get done until one or two o'clock in the morning. Well, when my son was born, it like I was falling asleep at my desk. You know, uh, at like at like one o'clock at midnight, one o'clock, and the staff would be like, "Hey, is you know fell asleep again? Are you okay?" And I was like, "Yeah, I'm good. Like I'm just really tired." Uh, and they were super understanding, and even the family who owns it was super understanding when I left. But I left, and I got into wine sales and distribution, right? And that was that was interesting because I think that that was kind of like the furthest I had gotten from like really tasting a wide variety of products on a super regular basis. Right now I'm just focusing on one portfolio and what I have to sell. And I chose the best things that I really liked out of that. And I went out and I would go pitch those uh, and I was good at it. But then, you know, a year later the pandemic happened and I got furloughed like the rest of the, the, the sales world did. And so about halfway through being furloughed, uh, it was starting to become a little bit more evident. I was hearing from my my employer like less and less. And it was like, I think eventually they're just going to terminate this position and not bring me back. And so they did. And during that process, I, I got my own alcohol license. We used our first stimulus check to get uh, an online wine sales uh, alcohol license here in California. And that that just kind of became that became wine with wine wine talk with Tesh on my Instagram handle, and then the business part, the the actual retail shop became winewithtesh.com. It's really cool. It's really hard to do. So for our listeners that are in the U.S. or outside, like you have to get distributing rights in different states and every everywhere. So that's not an easy feat to do. And what yeah. that, what made you decide you wanted to do that? So, okay. So the pandemic had hit and I, I was furloughed. I had nothing going on. I just wanted to do something. And I was like, I, the only real skill set that I have is like being a Psalm, right? Like, I don't know what I can do. And my thought was like, maybe I could partner with my restaurant people who are struggling with their, because they're sitting on a bunch of inventory that they're not moving right now. And my thought was maybe if I did like a virtual tasting where people bought the wines, from these places. And then we would all go online together and they could watch and I could take them through the tasting notes and I can take them through the history of the winery, what's cool about the varietal, what to pair it with and so on and so forth. And that just kind of developed. And after like 
two or three months of doing that, it was like, I think I have enough people like who follow and watch. And I was like, I was like, I think that we should get a, a license uh, and just do it ourselves because everyone kept saying the same thing that they would participate more often if they could just had like one source that they could get it from consistently. Yeah. And so um, it was a small thing, but it not, nonetheless, it was a thing that I was like, I think that there's some foundational blocks here that we can build off of. Um, and so we just kind of went for it. And yeah, shipping to your point, shipping is awful. Uh, especially as an independent shop. It is not the business. You have to get a direct shipper's permit for almost every state. And that's only like 10 of them that even allow it. The most of most of them don't even allow you as a, as a direct shipper, uh, small business, they don't even allow you to ship it to their state, period. So what happened, and then the people that, the this is another question I get like very regularly, uh, is what happens if you just try to ship it? Well, if for some reason it gets intercepted, that product is just gone. I'm out that product. You're out that product. And then as a business owner, right, what's the right thing to do is to make sure that you're taken care of. But I'm not going to risk me losing out on that money just to chance you getting some product. So um, the shipping thing is tough, is is very, very difficult. So mostly in California right now, I can legally ship to uh, Alaska, which is insanely expensive. Nobody in Alaska pays for shipping. And I don't blame them. It's bonkers. I, sh- I can ship to Nevada and uh, Oregon. And those are the ones that I've set up just because I've had people reach out to me directly and ask me to set that up for them. So, you know, um, you know, we've been in the virtual wine tasting for a while. And, it's, you know, there you mentioned a few states that you can ship to and a lot of the tasting that you've done in California. But back in the day when we could travel anywhere that we wanted, what is the most interesting place you've tasted wine at? Man, I wish I had traveled. I wish I I had the opportunity to travel a lot more uh, than I have. We've just, my wife and I, we, we've kind of built our, we're, we're trying to like tear down generational issues. You know what I mean? Uh, And so for us, uh, traveling hasn't necessarily always been on like the high point of things. So for so we haven't traveled a ton, but I will tell you this, right? I have tasted a lot here in California. Another thing that that like about being a sommelier that is amazing is that we are in the very, especially if you're a buyer at any place, um, which I have been for years, is that uh, you have the unique position of having all these wine reps bring all this product to you. So, so I like, it's never like on the forefront of my mind to be like, oh, I really want to go to blah, to go taste blah, blah, blah. Do I want to? Absolutely. But it's never really my first thought because I already feel so lucky to have uh, access to and to get to taste so many different wines from so many different distributors. You are fortunate because you live in a good area that's close enough to some great wine regions, but it is, it's a good point though. Like that's a point of privilege that not everyone has that it's a huge travel. Yeah. It's a, yeah. It's a huge privilege, you know? And like, yeah, I mean like, yeah, I could slap it on a credit card, you know, but like after this last year, a, a whole lot of us ain't really slapping nothing on a credit card without thinking twice. Yeah. And, and if you can kudos, like do, do you live your life? But uh, that's not, that's not my reality right now. Interesting. Doesn't necessarily mean hopping on an airplane, like an interesting place to taste wine. For sure. Or an interesting experience you had. Tasting, yeah. Actually. And that, that was actually when I just, you know, when I gave my brain a second, I was like, I know the, the answer to the question and it's going to be, it was a, it was a wine region. I got to spend about four or five days there. Uh, it was Santa Lucia Highlands uh, right here, uh, just south of Monterey. It, that region to me 
I just had so much fun. Like all of the winemakers, all of the winery owners, they just seemed very genuine and they were very authentic, right? Like there was one winery owner and I, gosh, I can't even remember his name. Uh, but he, he was like, he was a farmer, like, and he dressed like a farmer, but he also happened to be incredibly wealthy. So he would talk about like just jumping on his helicopter and like going to LA for whatever, you know, a meeting. And, uh, but he, you know, down to earth, he was a farmer and like, that's how he talked. That's how he lived. That's how he joked. And I was like, dude, like, I really dig your energy. Like, and I, I, you know, I, I bonded with him for that reason. And then, and then it wasn't just that winery. It was multiple wineries like Pisoni. If you've ever got, if you ever get a chance to come to California and go to Santa Lucia Highlands to hang out with Gary Pisoni, go do it. It's an experience. The dude is, he's just got so much energy. So I think, I think for that reason, I just had such an, such an amazing experience and it was really about the people. And then I was there with a group of sommeliers from kind of all over the place. And, uh, and we just, we, we, like, we clicked, you know, the people who were on this trip, uh, it was just a really, really good and fun group. Sounds like the hospitality in the community is always important. So it really is. It really is. Regardless of what side of things you're on, um, hospitality is, is never going to go away. That was why I got into the restaurant industry. I just knew I would be good at it because I'm Indian and that's just, you know, I grew up that way. Like we just, when people, people would come over and they wouldn't like call first, right? It was like back in the day, we all probably can relate to this, right? People would just show up, but like in an Indian household, people would show up and they would be there for like the day, like the day. And so you would start putting out tea and cookies and you'd start cooking a big meal and y'all, you can't leave without eating. Right. And it was like almost forceful, but it's like very much a part of the culture to just show these people a really good time. And I think inherently, like that just kind of stuck with me. And so when I found an industry that that would allow me to do that on the level that I wanted to do it at, uh, it stuck. I wasn't I was inherently good at it, you know, and um, and I just I just sunk my feet in and just went for it. And I had a lot of growing pains. I did a lot of dumb shit too. You know, all the no-nos that you could think of as like a service aspect. Uh, Right. Let's talk about that. What's a (laughs) blooper or a faux pas you had? Oh man. Okay. So here's one. So like the one that I think of is like, I'm in the middle of opening a bottle and I'm see I'm getting seated. Right. But, and this is when I was a server at Morton's and I see I'm getting seated and like the bullets are starting to come down my head. And this is back when Morton's was just like pre they got bought out by Landry's. It was still very a corporate thing. And, uh, you know, we had the big menu presentation where like you pull up the tray of steaks and you show everybody, you pick up a lobster, right? And all that fun stuff. Um, Just point of information, you literally have a cart wheeled out. A literal cart with everything. No, I want to say everything. A huge portion of the menu on it. And you would literally talk. And it was called the menu presentation, usually like five to seven minutes long. And so you would have to do that. And I remember I was just sweating bullets. And I, mid opening this wine bottle, right? Very just like not classy, but... Uh, my, uh, my, my wine captain prior to me was strolling by and I was like, Hey man, can you just help me? And I just kind of like handed the bottle off. Can you just open that? And he was like, "Uh uh-huh. And, uh, (laughs) he, he rolled with it. He opened the bottle, but it was just like, uh, in hindsight, that was a very, you don't do that. Right. Like you don't just like you're, you're, you've committed to opening the bottle. You're now committed to opening that bottle. It's just, uh, it's an etiquette. It is, right? It's, it's just very, very poor etiquette. Uh, but I learned that the hard way. And the moment I did it, I knew it felt wrong. It was like, that didn't feel as graceful 
as it should have. But you know, those are those are growing pains. You're not, you're not going to know to not do that unless you do it once. You got to fuck up. There are some specific Somali etiquette things that are kind of weird. Like what would be one that you would get rid of? Serving all the ladies at a table first. That is weird. That's kind of old fashioned. It's pretty old fashioned right now. And and to be fair, I, I started to. I just I was like, I'm not going to do that to, for two reasons. At the kitchen, everything in the beginning of the night is very fast paced, right? Uh, it's like, you know, there's like the TV shows where like a bus pulls up and everybody gets out of the bus and then the restaurant slammed because they just got seated like 50 people all at once. That's the kitchen every night. So everything in the beginning of the night is very fast paced. So if you have like five bottles of wine that you need me to open for your table, I'm going to pour the taster very politely for that one person. And that table is just getting clockwise service at best. Like I'm just going to go in a circle and I'll go through the motion, but I'm not pouring all the ladies first and I'm not making eight rounds around this table. But then that, that also became a, a thing where like, you just have to read the table. The older the clientele, the more probably old school you need to be with your approach. So thinking about uh, learning from mistakes and mm-hmm. you know, building on what you learned, um, we'd love to hear about a best lesson learned from your time as a psalm that you apply to your life. I think a part of that may be just like always have the game face on, right? Uh, always have your gloves up because even if you're in the weeds, uh, people don't give a shit. <laughs> They really don't, right? And I, I and I hate saying it that way because I, it makes me sound callous or that like I'm not open. Um, but I am open. I just I'm very particular about who I choose to be open with, and it's kind of that way. I think as a sommelier, uh, you, it's very much like you know duck on the water, right? Like you are very calm, just chilling. I'm just cruising across this river or this lake, but underneath underneath that water, you are paddling like crazy. You've got like five things lined up in your head that you have to do. And I think I've approached my business that way as well is, uh, you know, I've been very, very realist, very open, but like, if I'm struggling, like, I don't need to share that with people. You know what I mean? Like, that's not really their problem. It's my problem to deal with. And I, and I share about it, you know, with people who I know I can share things with, you know, like my fallbacks, my rocks, my wife, I have a couple of good friends who uh, I air things out with and stuff like that. And so uh, that's definitely, that definitely is true in both, both worlds. And even more so, I think, as a sommelier in a dining room. They don't care uh, if you're in the weeds. Yeah, they really don't. It's a presentation. Don't. It's a sauce. Yeah, but, yeah. But, but you know that sommeliers are people too. You know, they crack. They need love. They need support. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I'd be apropos not to ask you about what's a sound that you associate with your world of wine? Uh, I'm going to just have to replicate it for you. All right, you ready for this one? I'm going to yes. use my water. That's yeah, a great sound. That's, that's, a a, that's, that's the sound of... Uh, yeah, you got to like suck air into your mouth, right? With fluid in the bottom of your mouth. And it just, it's kind of like aerating the wine in your mouth. Uh, it's not kind of like, yes, it is what it's doing. And so uh, every time I hear that, I'm like, and and to be fair, I do it the most. Because <laughs> I want to know what's going on. You know, I, I swirl my mouth around, like I chew it almost like, like mouthwash. And people uh, ask me uh, if that helps me taste more. And I'm like, absolutely. You're just coating your entire mouth with the product. If you just sip it and just chug it back, right? You know, again, like my cousin told me, it's not you're not really having a sense of appreciation for everything that that wine has to offer. But if you you swish the swishing sound of wine, anything that's pouring slow like when a champagne bottle pops too, that's another good one. People like to hear that loud pop, but really it's about being graceful and just hearing a small hiss. If you get the hiss, 
Beautiful, beautiful opening of a, a bottle of bubbles. But I get it. It's celebratory, right? Like you want to shake it and here go. You want to hear that pop and just like champagne flying everywhere. But that's a waste of good champagne. I was going to say, I don't. I want to drink that champagne. So Yeah, so. yeah me too. Like me too. For a lot of people, it's just right. The act of opening the champagne. The they must not yeah, be drinking. It's very... They're not drinking the great bubbles then is what I'm saying. If they're doing you know, that. Which we're, I'm trying to change that. I'm trying to change that. That's what all of us sommeliers should be doing. We should be just trying to like encourage people to try stuff that is outside of their comfort level, but that it, wine doesn't have to be expensive for it to be amazing. You just got to taste through a lot of bad stuff to get to the good stuff sometimes. But that's what psalms are here for. That's why we, that's why we exist. Well, Tesh, we really thank you for taking time out of your day to talk wine with us and your story. So thanks for coming on the pod. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks for letting me ramble. I know I do that a little bit. We don't mind. It's fine. That's what a podcast is for. (laughs) Good. Thanks for listening to an Invino Fab and Telesom production, The Smalliest Stories, Uncorking Wine Tales. If you liked this episode, tell a friend to subscribe and leave us a rating review in Apple Podcasts. Telesom brings the psalm to you. Check us out online at telesom.app or on Instagram at telesom.app. We can't wait to meet you.